Hello, and welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. We are back into women's soccer mode, and this week, Howard Magdal is back on the show, and we are discussing the latest on the equal pay front with U.S. soccer stepping up with a couple of big announcements this week, followed by some back and forth on Twitter, and no clear answers yet if this will actually solve anything. Before we get to the rest of today's episode, as always, to show your support of Full Time with Meg Linehan, plus get all of our women's soccer coverage and everything else The Athletic has to offer on our site and app, you can subscribe right now at theathletic.com slash fulltime. There's always an offer there, and it's always one of our best deals, and right now it's 50% off your new annual subscription. All right, the news. It is international break time, so let's do a quick rundown on this front first. Steph Young is in Cleveland right now and is heading to tonight's U.S. Women's National Team match at TQL Stadium against Paraguay. Tonight's match is the first of two friendlies. It's on ESPN2 at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Game two is in Cincinnati. I'm heading to that one myself, and that's on Tuesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on FS1 and TUDN. Head coach Vlako Andonovsky said that Tobin Heath will be on limited minutes, maybe 10 or 15 in the first match, up to maybe 20 by the second match, and Lindsey Horan will not play in either game at all after picking up a knock in the Portland versus North Carolina game. There will be a way to watch at least some UEFA World Cup qualifiers here in the U.S. with Paramount Plus airing 16 matches that was announced on Wednesday. It was heavily populated by England and Germany, but that full schedule is available now. The group stage is set for Champions League with the draw taking place this past Monday. Chelsea, Wolfsburg, and Juventus in Group A. Real Madrid drawn into Group B, headlined by PSG. Arsenal and Barcelona in Group C. And Lyon heads up Group D along with Bayern. Just a reminder that every single match of the Champions League from here on will be streamed for free on YouTube via DAZN. The Spirit were forced to forfeit this past Sunday's match against the rain due to multiple breaches of COVID-19 protocols, and on Thursday afternoon, the NWSL announced the Spirit have forfeited their match against Portland Thorns FC that was not played earlier this month as well. We're all in on the latest from U.S. Soccer on this podcast today, and I will fill you in as we go on the news on this front. So Howard is back with us here on Full Time. He's the founder and editor of the Nine Newsletter and the Next Basketball Newsroom, and his work has appeared all over the place, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, plenty more. He has a new article on Thursday at Forbes asking, has U.S. soccer grabbed the PR high ground in equal pay fight? So let's see if we can answer that question. All right, Howard, you published an article at Forbes this morning, and the headline is a pretty simple one that asks the question, has U.S. soccer grabbed the PR high ground in the equal pay fight? And I want to start there because we've had a very interesting week in this <laughs> in this world. I and <laughs> I just, it has been very interesting to kind of see this develop over, I mean, I, I've been reporting on this since, in some form, since 2016, when the players had that first phone call with the EEOC complaint being lodged, right? Like, this has been a very, very long process. And it has always been way more nuanced than just the words equal pay, right? Like, that, I think we will both, <laughs> both cop to that. There has kind of been a turn, though, I think over the past few months of 
okay, is is there some reasonableness to what U.S. soccer is saying? And that, I think, has really come via new president, Cindy Parlo-Cohn. Do you think mm. that's that's accurate? I, I think that's definitely a part of it. I think there are a lot of moving parts here, but having a former player in that position instead of somebody who has struggled to say Megan Rapinoe's name properly at big-time events, uh, I think is a significant step forward uh, purely from an optics perspective and perhaps not purely from an optics perspective alone. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I feel like the word optics has lost a lot of its meaning to me over the past couple of years because so, I shouldn't say so much of it, but that has obviously been, if, we're, if we want to call this a fight or a battle, right, like that's generally the word use that we are using around this kind of struggle between the two sides of the Federation and the players there are some fronts to this fight, right? There is actually the legal part of this in the in the courtroom. And I have read all of these these documents back and forth, right? Like we've been able to kind of see the two arguments that the sides are presenting, how they're reacting to each other, what missteps might have been made along the way. But then fundamentally, so much of this is also playing out in the public sphere. And one of the things, and we'll, we'll get to kind of the most recent updates in a minute, but there is kind of this weird back and forth of who's allowed to do what. <laughs> and it feels like the players are more equipped to use optics to their advantage than the Federation is. And the Federation then gets pushed back when they try to do the same thing. I, I think there's a ton of truth to that, but again, that comes directly from who has the grievance. You know, if, if there is a general belief in the public sphere that the players are the ones who have the grievance and the Federation is the one that has the money. And I'm not saying that, again, it goes back to like, that, it's really nuanced. It's really <laughs> not as simple as that. But if that is the general belief in the public sphere, then of course you're punching down if you're the Federation every time you're doing that by perception. And so, you know, this sort of gets to the essence of what I was writing about to the extent that the Federation can present itself as an equal partner with equal stakes and, you know, potential as much to lose in this fight, the better off they will be in order to be able to wage that public war, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better phrase. And it gets to your issue of optics. I think that's a larger conversation. I think we, we're living in a society where optics have ceased to mean much to a lot of sectors of the society, and that may not matter, but I think it matters in certain areas. And I think as it relates to women's soccer, it definitely matters because it is something that those of us who are in this area are still paying very close attention to. Yeah. I think also, you know, we've seen the optics thing take a couple of different paths, right? Because obviously the biggest example of the optics maneuver is the documentary LFG, right? Which, to be fair, the players participated in, right? And uh, a spokesperson for the players participated in, but also is technically done by an independent company. So there is like 
just to fully understand the context of the documentary, but it is absolutely living within this world and clearly informing <laughs> what is happening in this dialogue between it. But I think also the the other part of this too is that there are still two distinct issues for U.S. soccer and the players right now. There are two processes happening at the same time. There's one that addresses the past via the lawsuit itself. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this ongoing collective bargaining negotiation because the current CBA between the players and the Federation ends December 31st of this year. And mm -hmm. so the Players Association, the union, is not technically the same entity that is involved in the lawsuit. Those are two, there's a lot of overlap because of the players, but those are two different elements of this happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they get conflated in a lot of ways. But also, I think it's very, it's been very interesting because the documentary does to some, to some extent, because the players are involved, talk about the future and what the players want to see. And that, that is kind of addressed by the CBA. But the documentary itself is not about, oh, we're going to go into this room with a bunch of lawyers and negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement. So it has impacted these CBA negotiations especially on the side of U.S. soccer. So the, there's two parts to that. One is like, that's such a great point that you make. And to extend that point slightly, you're also talking about groups that are going to grow more disparate as the years go on. That's simply put, as we are divorced from the past further into the future, it's going to be two distinct groups. Uh, eventually. And, and and we know with the turnover that happens at the national team level, that could happen sooner than later, mm -hmm. uh, frankly. So it's interesting to think of those as two separate fights, but it's not just interesting. It's also something that's going to be even more significant uh, to play handicapper for a moment, although I, in general, uh, try and stay away from that. I have a difficult enough time understanding the present at the moment, let alone being able to predict the future. Uh, but it strikes me as far easier to find a pathway forward to resolve the future for both sides, but especially for U.S. soccer, than it's going to be to relitigate the past. Uh, in part, going back to what we talked about up top, because things have hardened already in terms of how all sides think about what has already happened. But it is still an open question how people are going to think about it going into 2022 and beyond, which I think speaks to why this particular PR offensive is happening and the way in which it is focused on the CBA here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so just to, to briefly kind of sum up what has happened over the past week, there have been a couple of different uh, announcements from U.S. soccer over the past week, first, what happens is the Federation says, we would like the men's national team and the women's national team players associations to come sit together and we're going to hammer out a solution for equal prize money from FIFA World Cups. Like we need to, this needs to get resolved now. And then Cindy Parlo Cohn tells uh, Andy Doss from the New York Times, we're not going to even think about new CBAs for either the men or the women because both are actually needing negotiations at this point in time. The men have been operating under a memo of understanding for a long time at this point. Uh, we're not going to consider CBAs until this particular sticking point gets hammered out. 
So everything is on pause until we at least get this one part of the puzzle. And, and to be fair, it's a big part of the puzzle solved. Mm -hmm. Then this week, we get a press release from U.S. Soccer that says, we have now sent identical contract proposals to the men and the women as part of CBA negotiations in writing, which is important as well. Um, and now kind of the ball is in their court. So, and also like firmly states, there are no new CBAs until we get right. prize money sorted. So this is kind of the situation that we are in right now. Now also with the side plot of statements and Twitter <laughs> playing a role as well. Can I just, before we get to that point, I think it's really important to point out why the Players Association would be upset about that. And specifically to say that in order to find a true measure of equality in pay, you need to have one touch the other, which is to say that exactly what is fair in terms of FIFA prize money and bringing that closer to a true equality depends in significant part on what the compensation structure is and vice versa. So for the Federation to decouple those things is problematic to try to reach that end point if you are thinking about it from the Players Association point of view. One of the things that I just have not stopped thinking about, because also even even a while ago while reporting this, I, I kept kind of asking like, well, could you negotiate together? Like, are there advantages to the Players Associations negotiating together? And I think mm. there are pros and cons, but my immediate thought was when an employer is telling its own unions, you should negotiate this way, that to me feels like probably not in the best interests of those unions. It, it is a tell. It also, <laughs> it, it sort of violates the sanctity of the union itself. There's a reason why there are separate unions here. There's a, re you know, we were saying this is the way in which this union wishes to collectively bargain and being told by the employer, this is the actual collective. Uh, it's there. Yes. Again, that would be a concern of mine where I play the association. I, I just, I am trying to imagine a world where like an employer goes, actually, if you want to negotiate, you should do it this way. And just being like, why, why would I listen to you? The person I am negotiating with on how I should be negotiating. It's actually a step beyond that. It's saying we will only negotiate yeah. a CBA if you negotiate in this way. I'm just saying, you know, Becca's statement in response, the intensity of it uh, should not come as a surprise to anybody. Yeah. All right. So let's let's get into some of those mm -hmm. responses, because I think that they were pretty strongly worded. Um, and then also... What I do, I, I want to point this out too, is that generally, I think the players, there are always going to be statements coming from two different directions from the players, because again, we've got two different processes. There's a spokesperson for the players who are involved in the lawsuit, which is frequently why when I am writing about this entire situation, I will call them appellants <laughs> in that specific instance, because that is referring to that specific group of players versus the Players Association, because Absolutely. they are, again, two kind of distinct, different entities at this point in time. 
but her Becca Rue, who's the executive director of the Players Association, the initial response on this kind of identical contract proposals said U- U.S. Soccer Federation's PR stunts and bargaining through the media will not bring us any closer to a fair agreement. In contrast, we are committed to bargaining in good faith to achieve equal pay and the safest working conditions possible. The proposal that U.S. Soccer made recently to us does neither. So that's one part of this. There's also the earlier reaction to, which was on my Twitter feed, of mm-hmm. the the prize money. And that one was really also very strongly worded of essentially saying that you're pitting the men's team against the women's in order to settle this. So that's part one of this. And for I, I think it's worth breaking down some of this part of it before we we keep <laughs> adding in the layers of what's happening. I but agree. I think still so much of this is steeped in the fact that the priorities for these two entities, the men's and the women's teams, are completely different. Mm-hmm. We're coming from a landscape where Yes, the NWL is in a much better place, right? But how the two groups have bargained historically it is different. Like they do have different priorities, and while I think we are finally starting to probably see that shift happen, even within the lawsuit itself, there is an understanding that contract proposals that happened before this one mm-hmm. were not. It might have been the same structure, but they were not equal. Right. So I think that's kind of an important historical note of just there's there might be an offer on the table, but it is not necessarily what is being said <laughs> publicly. Can we also just speak to the fact that there is a separate NWSL Players Association, yep. a separate and distinct one from the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. And for some reason, U.S. soccer is not saying, for instance, those two entities must bargain together. That a pool of largely players who could potentially be part of the national team in the future, along with the national team itself, like players in so many different ways, are not part of that group, but there will not even be a discussion about a CBA unless and until this is collectively bargained with the men. I just, yeah. I just think it's worth pointing out that, you know, yes, when we say there's nuance, there's lots of nuance to it, but also it's very interesting what's being divided and what is not being divided. Uh, yeah. At least the attempt is being made in that way uh, by the Federation. Yeah. I also think that there is examining why the Players Association itself is calling this a publicity stunt is because again mostly cba negotiations i think like there have been some discussions of them but this is kind of a very forward first step for u.s soccer to be like here's the proposal the proposal is them we're waiting for their answer right like that is not how these these have typically gone in the past right like obviously there are a lot more eyeballs on especially the women's national team cba at this point in time But this is kind of essentially like the opening offer. They're making a big show of it. Right. right? And that's also important. And it's no small thing that U.S. soccer, at least at a decision making level, has determined that a fight with the players, a public show fight 
with the players is not in their best interest. Now, for, it has never been clear to me why they ever thought it was. But clearly that decision had been made because that was the way U.S. soccer approached this for the better part of, I mean, what would you say, three years, four years? I mean, it, it's, it, it just simply hadn't stopped. And they were, they were getting absolutely you know, beaten up about it publicly. And understandably so, given where the loyalties of the general public was likely to be. So this effort, whether it is taken in good faith or not by the players, is obviously a PR shift from the Federation. Now, the other question is, and this is a question I raised, and I don't think we know the answer to this, because it is brand new territory. Like you said, <laughs> we haven't seen U.S. soccer approach it this way. Is that enough to do it in a way that clearly is not engaging the players in a way that the players are comfortable with? Or, alternatively, does the fact that the players have accumulated through that years-long fight enough credibility in the public mind to be able to say, hey, this isn't what U.S. soccer says it is, is enough to keep it from moving the needle? And that's something I'm really curious to see in the coming months. And I think we're only beginning to get that answer. But part of how we get that answer is we're going to see how, how capable the Players Association will be at holding its ground in light of this happening. And also, even if they're interested in actually like further fighting in this public sphere, like, are you going to prioritize the public optics of it or are you going to prioritize the negotiations of it? Is there a way to do both in a way that might? Because what I think is really interesting, too, is that one of the best moments between these two sides in the past few years was that settlement that they came to. Uh, last December on the working conditions, which mm -hmm. came out of no, like that actually came from from talking <laughs> to each nice other and nice not not out here. <laughs> and again, it goes back to like what value is holding the public high ground? And I think it is clearly significant. It's significant to the point that the players having done so, despite losing in court, I mean, that was a massive loss in court last year, you know, not something that resolved all issues, but a massive loss has still led to the Federation being the side that had to change its approach. So right. that tells you the value of this fight in the public sphere. I doubt that changes. I think, to be frank, and this is just a personal perspective, having covered other labor negotiations as well, having a public win is as significant as winning in the contract in real time, and one leads naturally to the other and vice versa. I don't think you can have one without the other. So uh, a proper labor negotiator knows that you have to do both. Right. Okay, let's circle back to Cindy Parlo-Cohn because one of the moments that I also think was very interesting and also very illustrative of maybe some of this divide in terms of US soccer's PR strategy. So before the documentary was released, U.S. Soccer set up a call just with with Cindy Parlocone and Will Wilson and said, media can come on. We're going to talk about it. Not even the document. It was just like, we'll have some media time so that way people can ask questions. Right. So first of all, it's it's preemptive. Second of all, it allows Cindy Parlocone to talk. And I think her talking points have been a very consistent, but be very specifically targeted of we don't have that money to make up the disparity in, in prize money historically, right? Like 
we might be able to come to a solution in the future, but in terms of that, the back pay issue, like that money just simply does not exist. We have to figure out a solution that works for everybody, but also fundamentally, we're going to be a lot stronger if we work together and force FIFA into meaningful change, which we can, it's a whole other episode if FIFA will <laughs> actually <laughs> respond to sustained pressure from US soccer and the players combined. That is a whole different episode, but that that has been kind of the three main points that I think Harlow Cohen has consistently hit in her time as president, whether it's on media calls, open letters, et cetera. And from day one, by the way, from the very first day, that's where she's been. Yes. Yes. Which helps so, as well. Yeah. Very, very consistent. The other part of this too is then the documentary drops. And for those of you who maybe only just found out about the U.S. soccer communications Twitter account, uh, this week, it has existed previously. There was also a 17 tweet thread in response to the documentary. And I will honestly say some of their criticisms are valid in many sure. ways. And there's definitely room to discuss the actual like accuracy of that documentary. Mm -hmm. But I think also you have this very sustained, thoughtful, consistent messaging and then you have what's happening on twitter and then we see it again this week where we have planned <laughs> long uh, open letter from cindy parlocone on message on theme right obviously new territory but like fits in kind of what we're thinking cindy parlocone is is at mm -hmm. in terms of her leadership and then there's a tweet <laughs> that happens uh, in response to that statement from the Players Association saying the proposal does not offer equal pay or safest working conditions, um, the tweet in response was from the official communications account that says, an offer on paper of identical contracts to the U.S. Women's National Team and U.S. Men's National Team and to discuss equalizing prize money is real, authentic, and in good faith. A publicity stunt is a 90-minute one-sided movie. <laughs> to say the tweet did not go over well would be a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> Don't say. What, and what's so funny is I think had it had it stopped after that first sentence, it it probably would have just gone under the radar. I think would have been in keeping with the overall messaging as well. We're we're here. We're here to negotiate. We're not looking to take uh, cheap shots. And then it's just, I mean, and, and this has been the thing that I've been thinking about, though, is just like, what, what does this add, like, what does this add to the PR strategy? Because fundamentally, the communications account is an official U.S. soccer account. This sure. is coming from the communications department. But also, was that tweet reviewed? Was that like, I, I would love the backstory of how it came to be, number one. But number two, I would just also say this, and this is this is a basic communications thing. There are things you can say as a communications professional that are true that you still shouldn't say. I'm not establishing the veracity of that comment. I am simply saying, even if true, I don't think it served the value whatsoever, but it also had the added issue 
of, and this goes back to what we're talking about up top, there were years where it seemed as if at least, if not a goal, something they were not interested in not pursuing was antagonizing their most popular successful team. That very much fits with that model rather than the Cindy Parlow Cohen model. And and no, I, I don't I don't understand the value of it either. So one of the things that I think I just keep kind of getting asked by people is like, what is, what does all of this mean? Right. And I think I always, that question tends to slightly drive me up a tree because I just like, we don't really know at this point, like it's still for, from a women's national team perspective, it's still pretty early in the negotiation process, right? Like we know that there's a CBA, um, group within the players association that is specifically dedicated to working on the CBA and, and like they have their little committees and all that kind of good stuff. Right. So we we've known that for a while of figuring out what the priorities are. I'm sure all of that kind of stuff, but typically again, we only really know the ins and outs of the CBA because of the lawsuit. Most of this has happened previously entirely behind closed doors. And also like, it's not a fun, like this would not be a process that would get like, a great amount of media coverage anyway, because honestly, it's it's I'm sure just sending drafts back and forth between the two sides and yeah. and going line by line over, you know, which which airline they get to, you know, it's stuff like that. So I, I like your idea that the, you can make a documentary out of it. And so I think that like it would just be like just someone in a word like you know, track so changes are on. That. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you, you would call. The documentary track changes the story of the 2021 CBA. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. it. It's, it's just not. Minus it, that's also been, I think, one of the interesting parts of just even the fallout from so much of this story, but also just, you know, like I cover board of directors meetings, right? They're very boring. They're very boring. <laughs> like, it's just. The institutional governance stuff, you know, when when U.S. soccer drops all of its financial documents and you get to read through, like, that is not stuff that makes waves, but also it clearly impacts the stuff that does make waves. And so you need to cover it, but that's not necessarily, like, a lot of this stuff has just kind of been hanging out in the background for a while, and then it only really gets brought to light when it's suddenly in conflict. Well, look, and at the risk of saying something nice about you, which I know you always have <laughs> reaction to, your reporting to your to your immense credit parses these things to find out why they really matter, and they do. They have a tremendous impact, and we've seen that a lot in, I would say, sports reporting writ large over the last ten years, twenty years of the reporters who were willing to do the work and are willing to look into the documentation behind why certain things occur, are able to end up getting big stories as a result of it. And so you're absolutely right in that they matter. And at the surface, it may not be super exciting when that big legal brief drops in your email. <laughs> and so, oh On a God. Friday night at 9 p.m. Correct. There's <laughs> One of how many hundreds of pages in this PDF? Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. And, and you know that feeling very well. 
and and yet it it's significant. But I, I just I want to address your other point, the question that drives you up a wall, because I get it. I get why. First of all, I get why people are asking it, but second of all, I get why it's unanswerable. And the reason it's unanswerable is that this is all new ground. This is U.S. soccer engaging in the process in a way it hasn't in the past and in a different way than it has in the past. This is a moment in time where eyes are on this process in a way it's never been in the history of the sport. And so all of these things, all of these unanswerables come from just so many dominoes that are going to drop, but we don't know how and in which direction. And it's going to be fascinating to watch. And we know it will matter and it will set a precedent for what we think what I think is a long, long time to come in the same way that if you, you know, look at the WNBA, there was no real way to predict a year out what that CBA would ultimately look like. But it has mattered, not just in terms of basic pay structure for that league, but so many things that have followed. And so a coming together, let me put it this way, a coming together between the women's national team and U.S. soccer in an agreement that both are excited about or at least comfortable with going forward is going to have domino effects we're only beginning to understand. Yeah. I think there is a path forward, especially on on the CBA front, where both can walk away from it and feel like it's a win. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is that, like, and also any good, like, I think we've seen this in, in pretty much every situation where both sides are going to have to accept some smaller losses in order to get the bigger win, right? Like there, there is the process of compromise that needs to happen. And I think the question is, is will both sides feel equipped to walk away and say, we did this together. It's a win. Both sides should get the, the like public (laughs) congratulations for getting it done. And then we get to move on, right? Like, because that's mm. to to circle back to Cindy Parlo Cohn, right? That has been the message of if we can if we can settle this now, we get to lock arms together and right. move on and fight bigger battles instead of fighting each other. And that is, I think, still the ideal outcome of this situation. Allow me to posit, if I can that the dichotomy we're talking about between past and future that will only grow bigger with each passing month offers a pathway to that solution, which is to say the more that the win can reflect the future at the expense of the players taking a loss on the past will allow both sides to feel good about what happens moving forward. And the bad feeling that will come from losing from what has happened in the past will recede as a primary concern as those players move into ultimately soccer's past as a whole. So I think that is why, again, it makes sense for U.S. soccer to be taking the tack that it is taking. The larger question is, we're not there yet. The past and the present are inextricably tied in the most powerful voices on the Players Association side right now, and at least for a significant period into the future. 
And as long as that continues to be the case, it may be difficult to uncouple those two things. But it's just funny, if you think about it, that U.S. soccer is trying to bring this together, the men and the women, in a negotiation. When, if you want to be purely cynical about it, the real way for them to do it is to try and build allies with the younger portion of the women's national team in order to be able to find a future that works for everyone involved. Now I guess we just get to to wait and see and see how much of it lives on Twitter as opposed to in word track changes. <laughs> Listen, the, the busier our email inboxes are, <laughs> yeah. the less likely there is to be a solution coming here, right? That's what it comes down to. But I also, and again, this goes back to, and maybe this is just a message directly to Tony Clark of the MLB Players Association, which is not, I guess, technically the topic we're discussing, but the idea being that it is possible to fight on two fronts and it is in fact necessary to fight on the two fronts. And so both need to continue to happen. And, you know, I think in, in the national team instance, that's been done very successfully. And we haven't seen the national team uh, union willing to walk away from negotiations. We haven't seen anything like that. Right. So it is, it is not, it, it is a two track process. And I think I, I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for that. And I think that's why we're seeing where they are now. Um, but it has to be, has to be a two track process right up until the end. And then when it gets real quiet, right before the announcement comes, that's when we know they're close. Yep. Well, I think we'll, uh, I, that is, I think, one of the reassuring things is that there has not been a lot of, uh, the NWSL might be in a completely different situation when it comes to their collective <laughs> bargaining agreement uh, and how that that feels pretty tense at this point in time. And like, yes, there are mm. obviously public tensions, but I think when it boils down to it, this is kind of the beginning of the process. Like we've kind of seen now, okay, we've got the opening offer in this new approach and then now they actually get to go to work. I think that's a whole other show too. The NWSL. Oh. I think we're gonna. I think that'll be a series. I think. I, I think that's gonna be quite the story heading into this fall because I don't know everything I hear about NWSL CBA negotiations. I'm just like, none of this sounds great. Right. <laughs> so yes. we'll we'll see how. Obviously, there's there's just all of the things are happening all at the same time. So that's how women's soccer works. That is the world in 2021. Everything <laughs> at once. All right, Howard. Well, thank you for stopping by. Please let people know how they can follow you and your work. Follow me on Twitter at Howard Megdal, H-O-W-A-R-D-M-E-G-D-A-L. But my passions are The Nine newsletter, which is women's sports coverage every day across six different women's sports, T-H-E-I-X newsletter on Twitter, and The Next, uh, The Next Hoops on Twitter, which is 24-7, 365 coverage of women's basketball. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, as always, for stopping by. And uh, I love the nuance on, on equal pay. So I'm glad we actually got to dig into this a little bit. You and me both, Meg. All right. Thank you to Howard for his time, as always. One more thing. Obviously, we are still firmly in Ted Lasso mode in this household, but Marjorie and I 
also started Only Murders in the Building on Hulu, and it is delightful. Um, as Marjorie said, it has big Westing game energy, so if that book was also a huge formative experience for you, definitely recommend it. It's very fun, and now just be warned, <laughs> since I got someone with this earlier, it is week to week with episodes at this point, but there are five available now. All right, for all things full-time, you can visit fulltimepod.com. There are links for all of the major podcast platforms in one spot, plus more information about this show. You can subscribe to The Athletic and support all of our women's soccer coverage right now at theathletic.com slash full-time. Get that 50% off offer while there is still time. My name is Meg Linehan, and you've been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg, and thank you for listening. <laughs>